0: Welcome to Queers & Co, the podcast on self-empowerment, body liberation and activism for queer folks and allies. I'm your host, Jem Kennedy. My pronouns are they, them, and I'm a transformational practitioner and coach living in the UK. Hey folks, I hope you're all keeping well. I'm feeling a little bit croaky today, but I really wanted to jump on here to record the intro for the episode so that you get to listen to my guest They are brilliant and I've known them for just over a year. We met in person just before the pandemic hit and it's, yeah, I still haven't seen them face to face, but we've stayed in touch over the pandemic and supported each other and they're just great. So I'm sure that you're going to enjoy hearing what they have to say. Um, Just a cautionary warning that we are talking about Work related to supporting survivors of sexual and domestic violence. We don't talk about any actual cases or any, um, you know, any kind of specifics. But my guest is working in that field, and they talk about the importance of uh, supporting their clients so I just wanted to let you know that if that's something particularly with everything that's been going on recently or has been being discussed more recently obviously it's always going on um just wanted to give you a heads up in case that's something that you might want to avoid but really we're talking about it from the angle of how can we support survivors and um how my guest does that in her work so Let me introduce you to my guest. She is an integrative psychotherapist with over 10 years of experience with adult clients, currently based at Therapy Leeds. Her work is LGBTQ affirming and she's a writer, speaker and activist working to advocate and educate on the topic of trauma as a result of sexual violence. She believes we have a responsibility as practitioners to advocate in service of our clients and our shared world, and we talk about that a lot in the episode. So for anyone working in a field related to this, I'm sure you're going to find it really useful, and if you don't work in a field, then I think it's just a really interesting conversation, um, and one that's certainly very relevant at the moment, particularly. So without further ado, let me introduce you to Irini Hadjianu. Hi Irini.
1: Hi thanks for joining me thank you for having me it's really exciting to speak to you
0: oh and it's really great to have you we've been talking about this for a while and um, doing an episode together so it's really great to have you here
1: yeah yeah I do remember speaking to you about it face to face in a public space which means it was pre-lockdown <laughs> so yeah it's been a, yeah. it's
0: been a while <laughs> yeah it was just before lockdown actually I think like two weeks mm. or maybe a week before because I remember meeting in King's Cross and everything was just and so was quiet strange. yeah yeah that's right. Yeah. Um, so it would be great if you could just introduce yourself quickly. So anyone who hasn't heard of you can uh, learn a bit more about what it is that you do and who you are. Yeah, absolutely.
1: Um, my name is Irini Hagianu I'm an integrative psychotherapist. So that means I provide talking therapy. Um, and I uh, specialize in working with people who've experienced trauma as a result of sexual violence and domestic violence. Um, I do lots of writing and speaking on and things like this really on top of my my client work um which um I'm sure we'll go into a little bit more but just as an intro that's me and and what I do
0: great thank you and it will be really interesting to hear how it is that you got to this point because um obviously it's something you've developed over a long time and you're a specialist now in in a particular area so if you could speak to that that would be great
1: yeah um I always kind of um struggle a little bit with the question of how do you get into it because I think in some ways being a psychotherapist or a counsellor as a, as a sort of comparable job you sort of don't really know what you're letting yourself in for in terms of the training and the, and I think to a degree the, jo- the job itself until you actually do it and what I mean by that is um you, you're not only sort of like learning theory so that you can work with people and support them and you're definitely not kind of taught, okay, what's the perfect thing to say? You know, for example, if somebody comes to see you about a specific issue um, you really do have to apply, all of you as a person, um, to, to what you do in the work. And, and what I, um, what that means as well is that I I work in a very relational way. So it is very much focused on, okay, what's my relationship with myself as well as what's my relationship with other people. Um, and what's my relationship to, you know, the things that I'm involved with in, uh, involved with in the world. Um, and that's a really multi-dimensional way to kind of think and work. So, um, you have to, uh, basically have a lot of therapy yourself if you're going to be a psychotherapist or a counsellor um, so that you can do this work effectively. Um, but I think uh, going back round to your uh, kind of question in terms of how I went into it, it's definitely been a process. I actually came to psychotherapy I, I think comparatively younger to a lot of people. I was the youngest person on my training course um, by about 10 years in terms of the youngest person but a lot of people were sort of like in their 40s and 50s going into a second career and retraining whereas for me it was literally straight out of uni um, and uh, on that kind of training course Um, and I think for me I always um, knew I wanted to work with people I think I would have always ended up in some sort of like care or like health kind of job Um, just really fascinated with how people work um, and really just wanting to I guess, literally sit in front of people and and, and really get stuck into, you know, what makes us who we are. And if people are struggling, how can we get through that?
0: And you went on to specialise in working with people who are um, or who've experienced sexual abuse Mm -hmm. and domestic violence. And I wondered if that was when you first started out in your course, was that something that you planned to do? Or did that develop as you as you studied and trained?
1: Um, I didn't have a set idea at all. um, When I was training. um, And I mean, my training course was uh, in total six years. um, So a lot of time to develop. Um, And I think with the issue of sexual violence and domestic violence. Um it's it's so common. So I was working with it straight off the bat um wherever I've worked um whether it's sort of a charity or a little bit in the NHS or even in my private practice um sort of community things that I've done, you know, unfortunately anybody can be affected, which means that I was kind of seeing it wherever I went and I I'm really aware especially as I've been thinking about it these days about how much you know, part of the reason i kind of ended up specializing in it is that i just could not not respond to it if that makes sense
0: mm. yeah so it was just showing up in lots of different areas of of your work and felt like something that um because i guess it, it's a really obviously whenever we choose to work with people supporting them if you're going to be a therapist there are going to be lots of um challenging subjects that come up mm. but it's interesting the the ones that we um get led to and i guess the work that we end up doing around those specific subjects compared to you know why didn't we do something else mm-hmm, mm-hmm.
1: yeah and i think like i say because i was seeing it in all sorts of different places and um the majority of my working experience has been with women but it's much more diverse now because um, i um also uh work with anyone of any gender basically um and my my private practice at the moment is explicitly lgbt plus affirmative um Mm -hmm. so i've um sort of encountered uh, over the years just a a more and more diverse range of people who are affected by those issues which unfortunately is unsurprising because anyone can be affected like i say um but i think because for me the real pull into it um is not only because of the scale of the issue but because because it just affects people in so many ways. It really does, um, at worst, completely decimate people's lives. So for me, it was more of a a recognising and being pulled into the the wider societal issue um, in and of itself, as well as the individual people that are being affected by it.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah. And what would you say some of your biggest kind of learnings have been from what you do so far? Mm -mm -mm. I always...
1: I do kind of like walk a fine line I think because I always like to say you know I I really do I really am taught by the survivors that I work with um but also it's not their job to come in and just teach me do you know what I mean I have to obviously match them in terms of like my expertise and my support and my skills so I really do um Try to apply that. So, I I think a real learning curve is actually really walking that fine line. And I think that's really in the spirit of like relational psychotherapy, which is that we are coming in and, you know, we should be proactive about offering the support um, that we do. We should um, offer kind of advice and information if we know something that's going to be helpful. And at the same time, really respecting a person's individual process because, you know, up until the point they have you know sat in front of you um and started opening up that conversation um you know they, they have survived um and I think you really do have to respect that and you know um practically I see people for an hour and a week at uh, one hour a week um for however long we're working together and they you know have to you know do life without me outside of that hour and again I I really do try to pay respect to that and I think that's helped me really amend and adjust what I do so that it's about um working with the person amongst their trauma um that's something I really do try to advocate for um because and I think also the work that I do isn't just about kind of alleviating the impact of, of you know, trauma, um, however it comes to somebody, but also part of rebuilding someone's life is rebuilding their sense of self as well.
0: Yeah, that's so interesting. And it makes me think of when I first started going to therapy, um, gosh, like maybe three years ago, and I noticed that I was actually saving up my things to bring I think it was longer ago than that, but I was saving up my things to bring to my therapist as in like, well, I don't need to think about this now. I don't need to deal with it now because I can deal with it in therapy. Mm-hmm. And obviously now I realize that that is not um, not the ideal. That's not the point of it. But mm-hmm. I think there's something really empowering in that um, having a therapist who understands that you exist in the world the rest of the time and is sort of helping you to rebuild a sense of self, as you say, and to have those um, those mechanisms or, or strategies to cope on your own rather than needing to go and sort of um, just save it all up for that hour a week because that hour a week may not always be there. And yeah, yeah that can be, um, we need to learn to sort of do those things on our own as well. Yeah,
1: I think that's, I think that's a great point. And actually, you know, th- there is a there is a benefit to sort of I think I'd like to take what you've just said and I think reframe it a bit because I think there's something about okay I'm going to put a pin in this because I really mm. to bring it up and just like holding it quite lightly but it sounds like part of what you were doing um and had to sort of like change a little bit was to maybe kind of like attend to what was happening a little bit more rather than just saving it for that one hour a week is that right
0: yeah I think I was just thinking um of most you know any kind of minor issue I think but at that point was just oh well I'll save that to think about in therapy Mm -hmm. but um yeah, I mean, it was a helpful coping strategy at the time, but I guess since then I've learned to, you know, deal with more things on my own, um, and to explore them in therapy as well. But just to have a bit more of that um, sort of self-supporting way, I guess.
1: Yeah, yeah, and I, I think um, it's it's a funny thing because um, I mean, as I'll, I'll put my hand up, like I've had a, I've had a lot of therapy, mostly because. Of, through my training but also because I think I, I really just have to practice what I preach I, and I also have to look after myself as well um so I, I I do get that sense of you know okay I'm someone that has had you know ongoing long-term therapy um I'm not in it at the moment but I'm about to dip in just to you know again look after myself um but yeah that sort of sense of you know we are there and we are available as a sort of support mechanism and but but the point of the work is that you then internalize and integrate all of that so then Mm -hmm. manage on your own so yeah it's a really that's a really interesting part of the work for sure
0: yeah and um I wonder if there's anything else that you feel that you've learned so far I mean we'll get to all the other cool things that you're doing in a moment but um yeah, I, I wonder if there's anything else that comes to mind. Um, I want to expand a little bit on what we've literally just been talking about, because
1: um, just on the concept of safe spaces, because they're very mm. important. Um, whether you're somebody that comes from a particular community, so you need that safety in terms of like similar others, or at least if they're an ally, someone that's going to understand you and create a safe environment where you can make use of therapeutic support. Um Or, for example, you need that safe space because of what's happened to you, say, if you're a survivor of sexual violence or domestic abuse. Um, And I think I'm really aware as a therapist in terms of um, basically creating that safe space so somebody has one a little bit of respite um, because it's really hard to live in in that survival mode. Um, And I think also just creating a safe space so somebody can speak freely and actually really kind of. One do the work and also say the things that you just can't say anywhere else to, you know, promote your own recovery. But I think sometimes safe spaces can tip over slightly into like a dependency on a therapeutic service. And mm-hmm. to be honest, if 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 that is happening, then it's a failure on the. Um, Uh, on the therapist's part um, and I know that might be a controversial opinion um, or or on the organization's part but you know what we've just been talking about is we should be like as therapists enabling people to go into the world to live their lives in the way that they choose to um, rather than you know the only place I can be safe is that one hour a week with my therapist and you know I do also understand that you know if you've been really highly traumatized that might be how it feels for a while so that isn't a judgment on on you um if if you know if there's a listener out there who's who's affected by this issue um but and it's also to be honest just a bit of a, a pointer to how powerful the impact of trauma is but i think yeah i'm i'm very very aware that my job as a therapist is to be empowering and you know enable somebody's um recovery rather than just you know being the only person that understands them
0: yeah and that brings me on i guess to what we were um before we started recording we mentioned talking about how you create an lgbtqia plus affirmative practice or space because not only may these people have been survivors of um Domestic violence and other things. People still exploring their uh, queer identity or their trans identity, for example. It may well be the only hour a week that they can kind of open up and be themselves. um So yeah, that's a really interesting point.
1: Yeah, yeah, and I think the use of that um, more umbrella term, like that, seems to be commonly taken on these days of, of, of queer, is a good one because I think it also points to how like diverse someone's identity can be and actually i think also people's comfort level with wherever they are in their own queer identity which can change over time as we all know um i i think in terms of creating that safe space um it's about really kind of being very explicit and kind of signaling to anyone that might come across you like wherever you are placed that that is um a really active part of how you try to meet somebody um so i mean for me i've got um I've got the uh, rainbow flag on my website. I'm very explicit about the fact that I welcome anyone of any any sort of um gender identity sexuality etc into my practice and honestly that is one of the things that I've gotten the most positive feedback on which is that you know essentially I didn't have to search or guess or assume or hope that you would be welcoming to someone like me Mm Just basically told me that that is something that you're really proactive about um and also I think language plays a really big part um in, in that side of stuff. And i actually language is something that I think about a lot in, you know, even with working with survivors or queer people, it's, um, you know, um, telling people what your pronouns are and then asking for theirs. Um, I think also I'm quite careful to mirror the language that somebody uses, especially at the early stages of our work, um, because there might be some words that they don't like, or they're really uncomfortable with, or they just want to play around with really lightly. And I think that's, um, I think we really start with how we feel and then we find the words, um, so I really do try to um incorporate that like throughout my sort of conversations with somebody. It's like how do we think about this? It can also just mean how do we even talk about this, really
0: I think. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And would there be anything else that if if people are thinking about, for example, anyone who considers themselves an ally to queer people might be listening to this and thinking about how they could make their business or a workshop they run or anything else more inclusive and um, more open to people from the queer community? Is there anything else that comes to mind for you?
1: I would ask people to really um, consider when, if they've run trainings before, what kinds of people you're currently attracting because that will tell you what people aren't turning up um, and um, how uh, how it is a little bit of our responsibility to not simply assume that because we're there and we're advertising something that everyone can access it in the same way or even access it full stop. Um, so that can mean um, kind of going... Uh, and approaching other communities or sort of different spaces online or whether sort of out in the real world as much as we can during the pandemic uh, to just kind of make what you do known a little bit. Um, I've um, had some experience when I've worked in organisations of um, sort of uh, working with specific communities and for example if you're running a workshop it's really helpful to consider Um, asking somebody from that community if they might co-facilitate with you Um, and I think that's just a really respectful stance to take and also just means you're really really tailoring it to the kind of
0: people that you
1: excuse me want to welcome into the room
0: yeah yeah and I think the thing that I'm um, sort of reflecting on hearing you say that is that in the majority of my work well because of what I do and I guess the way that I talk about it I pretty much always have queer folks in my spaces mm-hmm. or um they're definitely in close proximity or in close yeah. contact with other queer people even if they don't I- themselves identify as queer um but yeah I know as a queer person going into spaces um for example training courses or um other spaces where that isn't kind of considered maybe for example people constantly using she her pronouns for me even though I have they them on zoom or um, talking about like us group of women and those kinds of things there can be Mm. um a real a real difficulty even if the facilitator might kind of frame something as being queer friendly actually like being in a space with other participants there's something about setting up the space isn't there and kind of um sharing with other people like this is the way that things will run rather than just hoping that other people are going to be on board with that as well
1: yeah and I think you're talking about a power dynamic and a hierarchy there which we all know is inherent in kind of our society at large um it's why queer people have to fight a lot harder to find like-minded people um and people that are going to be um not only kind of um welcoming but like really actually accommodating um so i think um yeah you're absolutely right in that sense so i think in terms of um managing that that power imbalance that I think a lot of queer people just get kind of confronted with all the time and also to be honest when you're socialized um you know to live in the world that we live in you sort of assume that there is going to be a barrier that you are going to have to handle which unfortunately usually tends to be the case but I think there's something about setting up for example like a workshop where it's very much a a negotiating of how how is this going to go what is the most Mm -hmm. constructive thing rather than just I'm I'm the expert, so I'm gonna tell you how this is gonna go. Um, I, I you know, I, I really try to foster that spirit of kind of like open back and forth communication and negotiating just to really mediate that because it can make people feel so alienated and pushed out of spaces.
0: hmm Yeah, absolutely. And um yeah, I think that brings us nicely on to the kind of wider work that you do. And um I'm wondering which part to start with actually, whether maybe let's start with, um, thinking about psychotherapy as activism, because I know that's something that you talk about a lot in your work. And I think it's really fascinating because I know that, um, we've had conversations in the past where some therapists feel that they have to be quite neutral and not kind of, um, use their work for any specific agenda. They're more there to help the person. Um, but I wonder how that has developed for you what what would you say when you kind of describe what psychotherapy as activism is
1: yep um okay so psychotherapy as activism is very much understanding that although the we offer private confidential spaces Um, it's still a space in the world so we do have to acknowledge that um, just because say it's me and one other person in a room alone together you know with that um, uh, with that confidentiality and privacy it doesn't mean that we don't both bring the world into the room with us and I think there's a lot of therapists that kind of make use of that concept in various ways so I don't think I'm kind of bringing anything uh, to um, too new in that respect. But um, in terms of working a lot with sexual violence and domestic abuse, I... Um, I very much take the stance that I'm sitting across from somebody who, for example, has um, some symptoms of post-traumatic stress, and I'm working with them to really kind of manage and alleviate those. And then after the session ends, they basically go back out into a world that is re-triggering. There's either still sexual violence or uh, domestic abuse happening um, to them, or kind of all the different variations of how somebody can be really violated against, um, disenfranchised empowered um oppressed um so for me I kind of feel like if I'm only working in a room with somebody um and basically teaching them how to um deal with what's happened to them without going out into the wider world to address the wider issue then I actually kind of think the work that I do is pretty useless um and I think it's also um quite disrespectful to the position that a lot of survivors get forced into which is that they are you know, not at fault at all for what's happened to them but they're left to pick up the pieces Mm. Um, and that's profoundly disempowering as an experience anyway Um, and actually I think for a lot of I I think for some clients that I've worked with the shock of having to see somebody like me is is part of what what is really scary Um, and just trying to figure out and process what happened Um, so I think I think for me it's 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 really an issue of you know I actually know a lot because of the work that I do about um you know the dynamics of um abuse of how it really affects people and I really do see it as my um I call it my social responsibility to really get out there as a psychotherapist to um not only help individuals affected by this issue but I think just educate the general public at large and you know if I can create some positive change uh, to really push back against um you know the issue
0: of of sexual violence and domestic abuse yeah and that feels so powerful because I'm thinking if if you aren't doing it you know people who are kind of in those spaces and hearing those really impactful stories from survivors if if people who are hearing those stories aren't doing it then it's kind of left to the survivors otherwise Mm -hmm. to go and do that and it shouldn't be their job
1: yeah, absolutely. And I mean, the thing is, some survivors, a part of their recovery or a part of what they want to do with what's happened uh, to them um, is to, you know, maybe become counsellors or psychotherapists themselves or mm-hmm. help other survivors or facilitate safe uh, safe spaces um, to kind of really connect with other people that have their the same lived experience. But, um, you know, some people don't want to do that which is fine or they'd like to but they're not quite ready um but I I also do think there's something about you know if if the closed off spaces of 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 psychotherapy is are the only places where where people are really speaking and hearing to and responding to the truth of sexual violence and domestic abuse um that's really not good enough and you know within my field you know there's obviously lots of trainings that happen um and ways that we're taught to you know support people that have been impacted by trauma but you know again that's another closed off space as as a clinical issue so to speak um and it's a real life thing that so many people are affected by
0: yeah and yeah I'm just sort of sitting with that and it applies to so many different issues doesn't it this yeah because there is so much um value in being able to really be ourselves and sort of reveal and share our true stories in company with someone else so in a therapeutic Mm -hmm. space but if that's the only place that those stories are talked about it also kind of adds to and it's not to say that the people who are sharing their stories need to talk about them anywhere else if that doesn't feel safe to them but it kind of um adds to the shame and the stigma of the thing like of the the issue because it's not then being shared with the wider world and kind of talked about and i think that leads to people feeling people who haven't experienced um sexual abuse or domestic violence themselves i think often it leads to them thinking that it's much less common than it actually is
1: yeah and also that it reinforces a lot of the myths and the stereotypes that we have um around for example who a perpetrator is who a survivor is, what are the circumstances under which sexual violence or, or domestic abuse happens. Um, and uh, I, I think that's a particular challenge in, in uh, for me, if, if I combine sort of my specialist area as a psychotherapist with being LGBT plus affirmative, um, because um, people assume that it only ever happens between a cis man and a cis woman, even, you know, if they're using the word cis, um, (laughs) you know, and it's, you know, it's always a stranger on the street kind of thing. And that's not always how it happens. And actually, you know, um, um, in, I think, I believe it's 90% of the time, if, if we experience sexual violence, it's from somebody that we have some sort of prior relationship with. Um, so it's, you know, whilst people do, unfortunately, um, um, you know, get attacked by strangers, it's actually the the, the sort of less common of the two.
0: Mm. Yeah, and I guess not not being aware of those stereotypes and those um, particularly people in the queer community, it can possibly feel very gaslighting to feel like, well, this, what happened to me isn't this or what happened to me is different somehow. Mm. Um, and also not to have an affirmative space to talk about that because, you know, there may be some, mm spaces that people might try and take that where um it's kind of downplayed or they may be gaslit into thinking that you know it's it's not as serious because it wasn't between a cis man and a cis woman Mm
1: -hmm, mm -hmm. yeah and also um some people um in in trying to find uh language around what's happened to them and try to make sense of them you know may for example look at like legal definitions um and the legal definition at the moment um In terms of rape is basically the setup is that it can only really happen um, between one specific person and another. And usually I think on the surface level in a very sort of um, uh, heteronormative way, um, like the example we've just described, um, which means that people then think oh well I can't speak up um you know whether they're reporting to the police or not uh which I mean as a side note that's obviously always somebody's individual choice um rather than something you have to do which is another myth uh really about sexual violence I think that emphasis to to report um I think justice looks and feels differently to different people and again there are so many barriers to reporting as we all know unfortunately including the really low conviction rate um and I think to um, go back to, I think, a little bit of what you were saying earlier about, you know, how do you kind of let people know that you have that sort of um, affirmative space and you're going to be understanding, I think, um, just again, really reflecting the language that you use and, and doing that sort of negotiating and, and meeting the person where they're at, at the point at which you meet them is really, really key, uh, rather than just wading in with with, with language that just, doesn't make sense or doesn't resonate or is completely re-triggering um Mm -hmm. and I'm thinking as well that I'm aware when I do podcasts like this that um you know people get one version of, of of me and what I'm like and um I think I do want to be clear that when I'm sat opposite um client um I do not wade in with my own agenda in terms of you know I'm an activist and let's do this and let's get really vocal about what's happened to you I I don't do that at all um obviously I have to really just meet somebody where they're at like I say um and really respect their process um and I absolutely respect that people one need to go at their own pace. One out of their own personal choice, and two because they're, they're, you know, they're at risk of being retriggered usually. Um, and also, people want different things um, at the point when they meet a therapist as well. Everyone's got different goals around um, managing managing trauma, which I think a lot of people are quite surprised by, actually.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think providing that space for people to heal in a way that feels the most helpful to them is also really empowering in itself Mm -hmm.
1: yeah for sure um and you know I've had experience of doing brief work with survivors or somebody sticks with me for a very long time or they work with me for a bit and then they go and come back you know like I'm I'm really aware that I you know in the overall um kind of journey of recovery if if we call it that um i'm there for very particular periods of time um so i'm i'm there to respond to what they need at the time when we are working together and i'm meeting that person
0: mm-hmm. yeah and you mentioned earlier some of the legal frameworks around how um the myths i guess how how they cause the myths that people um think of when they think of domestic violence and i wondered if you could talk a bit around your work that you've been doing around pre-trial therapy and um i guess that also feeds into into your book as well Mm -hmm.
1: yeah um so uh for anybody that doesn't know uh pre-trial therapy is um uh is basically centered around a set of guidelines produced in the UK by the Crown Prosecution Service um, and that sits within the criminal justice system so the CPS um, handle uh, basically um, uh, sexual offences and offences related to domestic violence Um, so they have a set of guidelines uh, which were created in 2002 I believe for adults, The, the version for children came out in 2001 and it basically sets out guidelines on If somebody has uh, reported um, a criminal offence to the police, um, they are therefore engaged in the criminal justice system. And from that point to, you know, whenever it is that they're not engaged in that system anymore, whether it's that they've withdrawn their report, report doesn't go to court for example or even if somebody does go to court and there's a trial um, uh, basically how a talking therapy professional such as myself um, should be delivering therapy whilst they're engaged in that process. Um, It's a very controversial area um, I think actually on both sides in terms of the legal and the therapeutic professions so um, the uh, within the guidelines, one of the most controversial things um, has been that because a person's, uh, as they as they phrase it, so you'll have to bear with me, a person's oral account of what happened to them is their evidence in their case, and that oral um, evidence must be protected um, at all costs. So what that essentially means is that um, how a person can recall what happened to them, um, so their story, their experience, is not something they are allowed to talk about with. A psychotherapist or a counsellor, whilst they have an active report with the police, whilst their report is being investigated, and whilst they are in court, um, that is obviously really devastating for all sorts of reasons. I think we could actually do a whole separate podcast on this uh, this topic, but I know we need to keep mm. it brief. Um, and also for um on the to be honest on the therapeutic side of things um there isn't currently any standards or mandatory training for um counsellors or psychotherapists in how to work with people effectively pre-trial which i think is an issue on our side so part of the work that i've been doing along um with uh, another counsellor and also an independent advocate um and a criminal barrister is to really try to address in a collaborative way how do we facilitate Facilitate a conversation between two very different fields that are going to keep the survivor at the centre of the process and enable their voices to be heard and give them uh, the right and defend that right to access therapy as they would expect to receive it, um, as well as being able to navigate the criminal justice process. Um, and as a slight update as well, um, in October last year, the um, CPS um, created a public consultation where anybody could give feedback on a, a new revised set of guidelines that they've published and that clause about um not being able to talk about what happened in order to protect your evidence has been removed within those guidelines but it's wow. not it's not yet yeah, which is awesome uh, and at the same time they haven't officially published um the, the the new guidelines yet um so at the moment we're still currently working under the old ones um another thing that therapists find very very difficult about working pre trial is um you know not only basically shutting somebody down when they're ready to talk, uh, which is absolutely counter to what we do. Um, it's also the um, notes, our clinical notes can get requested. And that's quite intrusive and quite private, I think, for, for, the, um, for the survivor as well as the therapist, um, because that, you know, clinical notes can get used as evidence. And whilst they can be helpful um, in securing a, a guilty conviction, um, it, it also, again, like I say, feels quite intrusive.
0: Yeah, and the fact that so few cases actually lead to conviction means that it's so much to go through, isn't it, for the the risk that possibly nothing will even happen to the person who has done that to you?
1: Yeah, um, and... I think as well, what is worth pointing out is that a a lot of the pushback um, on the current guidelines um, and there's been a few, um, there's a brilliant Vice article that was written, I think, sort of 2019 um, that basically had um, survivors say, you know, I tried to seek support and it was either refused to me because... The service basically said they didn't want to jeopardise the um, the criminal justice process or it was refused to me because the service was like well, we're, we're basically not offering you therapy uh, because you can't talk about it um, or I was told that it could only be delivered in this way where I couldn't speak freely as I expected to so I refused it myself um, and um, so a lot of the pushback has been from say uh, professionals like me or organisations that work with survivors or survivors themselves but actually the guidelines are for anybody that's reported any crime um to the police um but i can tell you that you know i can't remember the last time i got any sort of pressure for example in in working with someone who'd been a victim of a like an aggravated burglary for example and um, mm. so there's a real i i've I, the sense I make of that is that it's another area where survivors are dis, um, disproportionately discriminated against, um, because um, I think there are so many ways that you know they are sort of again you know pushed out of spaces or or their, or their rights aren't aren't honoured in the way that they should be, and it's it's somehow playing out in this overlap between the therapeutic and legal professions. So I've been working on a project for a long time about um, sort of responding to to those challenges for you know in service of survivors basically getting what they. What they have a right to receive
0: yeah yeah and you're right there's so much to talk about isn't there it could definitely be an episode on itself or on its own um and i wonder because i'm conscious of time if you could share um how all of this has led to the book that you've just uh, submitted to publishers just before christmas
1: yeah um well the the chapter on pretrial therapy um I don't know why I thought it would only be a sub chapter um <laughs> <laughs> because it turned into a whole chapter on its own, and I think it's about thirteen thousand words um wow. including um Um, including uh, quotes from survivors that I interviewed specifically for the book um, who basically gave their experiences on either... I reported, and this was my experience. Um, one person I interviewed had a um, uh, a verdict of guilty, um, which, as we've noted, is really rare. So there's um, someone's experience of that a little bit as well. Um, there's also, you know, people who thought about reporting and didn't, which is much more common than not, I think. Um, so I really wanted to combine, you know, what I was uh, hearing in terms of working with survivors and the work that I've done in terms of lobbying around uh, sort of change around these guidelines as well as really giving a platform for survivors to give their first-hand experience which um, I really do hope is helpful and the the, the rest of the book does include um, uh, sort of um, my thoughts on psychotherapy's activism in terms of what that means, what does it look like why should we do it, which I know we spoke about a moment ago, um, as well as um, a few different areas in terms of actually what's it like being in a room with a client and how do we you know for example push back against internalized myths how do we help somebody manage the um the body-based impact of um traumatic stress so a lot of people for example have um kind of nightmares flashbacks um and i think to highlight to anybody that isn't aware of uh this sort of thing it's it's pretty common actually for me to if I'm working with somebody who's quite highly traumatized they you know someone can come to an appointment and they really want to do that and they want to do the work but their body looks like it wants to leave the room um and that's Mm -hmm. absolutely normal because we have all these different um sort of uh, unconscious neurophysiology neurophysiological mechanisms that that try to keep us safe and obviously if you've been through something traumatic um it's hard to process you know the memories around that and what's happened to you and it means that at some level your body is still reacting to what
0: happened even though you're safe yeah and so there's lots of um sort of different ways that therapists can learn about how to support people in that in that space i know you talk about um in an embodied way and also kind of on a more um, a a larger level, like actually maybe taking their experience their work out into the wider world and and how they might make change too
1: yeah definitely um the the first chapter is about um it's called sexual violence in context and part of it is acknowledging kind of the scale of the issue like the reality of the issue but then also it then goes into okay what are actually the barriers for somebody seeking support because like i said to you earlier um i know i've only entered a survivor's life at a very certain point and i'm super aware that Um, you know, they've had to navigate a whole bunch of internal and external barriers to sit in front of somebody like me. Um, Mm -hmm. And that's something that I've learned not only from doing kind of the face to face work, but I've also set up and run services before, including in a rape crisis centre. And it's just so visible to me, um, you know, just how much people have to go through, even just to kind of pick up the phone and make an inquiry, let alone actually walk into a building and sit in front of a stranger to start talking about probably the worst thing that's happened to them so I do really want to um gently bring um other uh uh, raise awareness for therapists in terms of it's it's not just about what you do in the room at that moment there's so much that's come before and in between the work that you do
0: Mm -hmm. yeah and When is the book due to be out? Do you know yet? No, I'm in that um, uh, kind of slightly silent period
1: of um, having submitted the manuscript and sort of just waiting for my editor to get back to me. And it is is my first book, so I don't know. Um, I mean, I've got a sort of a... Um, a bit of a rough uh, guideline that I've been given in terms of time but I also respect the fact that I'm not the only author they're dealing with so um, yeah I'm just taking it as kind of like rest time after kind of writing such a big piece of work but I am hoping um, sort of by summer 2021 fingers crossed all being well.
0: Okay. Oh by this fa- this summer. Yeah, basically. Oh great. Fingers crossed Okay. And um thinking of that so you've you've had this kind of huge project that you've been undertaking in writing the book and also you've obviously had your ongoing client work in a pandemic mm-hmm. um whilst also um working on kind of um your activism as well kind of around the issue and I wondered if there are sort of ways that you look after yourself other than therapy yourself I'm guessing. Um how how have you looked after yourself during all of that? Because that's a lot to be doing. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, I am um, definitely. I think it's healthy to have a transparency, especially a therapist at this time, um, within a field where usually your clients know absolutely nothing about you. Um, you. We just can't hide from the fact that we are also going through this pandemic. So I think mm-hmm. just kind of being, I, I think there's, I, I think there's a level of healthy self disclosure that you can do, um, and just kind of acknowledging. You know, actually, you know, this has a bit of a um, a parallel with uh, something we said earlier about, you know, living in the same world as our clients. Um, you know, just kind of saying, like, how are you? Yeah, I can't believe we're still in January. <laughs> you know, <laughs> um, I, I think that's healthy and normal and it's a way to sort of connect and just, you know, acknowledge you know, what's going on. Um, mm-hmm. but also for me, I do try and practice what I preach in terms of, um, I talk to clients a lot about having a baseline. Um, so that can be, um, you know, just how did, how do you feel and look after that baseline? Do you, um, you know all the boring stuff that we know works unfortunately like am I getting enough sleep um, am I eating regularly am I drinking water um am I having time away from my screen I think is important right now um mm-hmm. and I think with the sort of very embodied ethos that I try to um Kind of work with when I'm um, doing my job, I definitely apply that to myself. Um, getting up and moving, even if it's a walk or a stretch, um, can really I think changing your physicality can really change um, just how you feel in yourself and and um, really counter any sort of like difficult uncomfortableness that you've got going on. So I do definitely go out for my daily walk um, that we're allowed to do. Um, uh I get into different fitness things at different times at the moment it's uh weight training so that's that's me
0: cool yeah. <laughs> that's great thank you and um I always ask my guests if there's anything that they're enjoying at the moment that they'd like to share with listeners and I wondered if you had anything
1: yeah it's um I thought about this because um I know you'd asked me beforehand to uh kind of take a minute and think and um I'm really really enjoying uh the fact that there are other people in my field that are trying to really respond to um the the one the diversity of of people but also with you know like the racial justice movements that are going on at the moment you know I've got my work that I do with survivors there's so much more conversation around um kind of queerness these days which is brilliant but basically how do we really acknowledge that the mental health system is not really set up to fully accommodate diversity um so uh within the UK there's a very new organization called the Radical Therapist Network which I've just become a, a, a member of um and it's in part a way to really learn off each other in terms of um, sort of uh, counsellors, psychotherapists uh, working together, but also it is a space of how do we unlearn the oppressions that we are socialised to uh, Internalise. Um, so that's the Radical therapist Network in the UK. Um, there's also, I think, I think they're American. I'm not 100% sure, but i there's another organisation called um, Inclusive Therapists. Um, so I've been looking on their resources page because it's really excellent as a way to again unlearn. Um, you know, the things we're sort of socialised to take on that, that means that um, we ignore the diversity of people. So um, I've got the website up in front of me. And it's InclusiveTherapist.com, and if you. Look on their resources page there's so much there so I really do want to share that with people who um, um, you know do the work that I do but want to really proactively um, you know welcome and um, take care of and really affirm and validate um, anyone that sits in front of us.
0: Thank you. That's really exciting. I'll go and check those resources out. And I love the idea of a radical therapist network. That sounds so cool. Yeah, it's, it's pretty fab. Um I'll, I'll fill you in on another conversation. <laughs> <laughs> Great. And, and one final question, because a friend comes to mind, actually, who has been thinking about training as a psychotherapist for a long time, but actually finds it quite hard or has found it quite hard to find a course that takes into account um, social justice issues and sort of wider um, societal oppressions and stuff I wondered if there is a space like that that exists or is that something that you come to maybe after you've trained I don't know
1: oh um oh gosh if you're asking me specifically about a training course um I can't name one partly because I've only had experience of my training course which to be honest I qualified in 2015 so it's a slightly distant memory um but I do funnily enough I did have this conversation with someone else recently in the same position as your friend and I said you know whilst I I do remember a module on um kind of like diversity and you know all the stuff that means including actually a very difficult exercise about basically like stereotypes um Mm -hmm. because you know we we can try to shy away from them but actually I think we need to kind of step forward to them and deal with the uncomfortableness so we can do that unlearning um but when I had this conversation with um somebody I I I said to them I you know beyond that in terms of stuff that we were taught what I do remember from my training course was that it, it felt like a space where if something difficult came up, it could be worked through within the safety of the group. And that's the most important thing. Um, so, um, but I do know that um, very often trainees are put in a position where they have to do the work as the kind of marginalized or, or, or different in inverted commas um, person, um, which, you know, that, that, that should be everybody's work. Mm-hmm. So um, yeah. Yeah. I'm afraid. I think the short answer to your question is I don't know in terms of naming a specific course, but there's so much pockets of work being done in so many different places and i would actually encourage your friend or anyone else in this position to when you're approaching training courses make that an explicit question that you ask uh, not least because you know just for your side you're investing a lot of time and 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 you know your finances into making the commitment to learn but there's definitely communities out there like i say for example the radical therapist network in the uk where you can find your pockets of people to to really get involved in that work
0: yeah, thank you so much. And thank you for joining me. It's been brilliant. I'm so pleased we finally got to record an episode. I know me too. And honestly,
1: thank you so much. I really appreciate being able to just have a conversation like this. I think it's great. Um so thank you for having me. Oh, any time.
0: <laughs> Hello again. <laughs> we stopped recording and then um we were quickly talking about how it was a shame that we didn't get to talk about queering psychotherapy. Or you you were mentioning that. And so I said should we quickly record a, a bit about that? So um yeah, it'll be really interesting to hear more about that yeah thank
1: you um yeah because i felt that it would be helpful um in terms of and probably as as an add-on to your last question about you know where do you go in terms of a course or or how do we like get trained um to work with diversity including lgbt plus people um one of the things that i um do refer to um especially if i'm explaining what i do say to an lgbt plus person um who's kind of interested in in kind of scoping out if i'm the right person for them is to say what i try to do is really kind of queer the theories that um i use and have been taught especially because a lot of them tend to come from very uh kind of white middle upper class heteronormative ideas so um what's really classic for example is you know in when we're trained we're always taught in terms of developmental theory like okay the mother is the caregiver um or that you know um I use a lot of psychodynamic theory which is brilliant if you really strip it down to the dynamics but the language around it is very much mother father child um you know it's very not only binaried in its gender but also I think sometimes attributes very uh stereotypical like binary qualities to each of those two genders um so i really do try to um kind of dissect and and queer the theory so that we can um be a bit more flexible and inclusive of okay families look different um Uh, Whatever family you're in, relationships look different, how you experience your masculinity or femininity or just absolutely not at all, um, you know, um, just kind of really plays into how you understand yourself, how you understand your relationships and your family as well.
0: Yeah, there's something about taking that theory and then yeah, as you say, queering things, anyone who listens to the podcast probably knows by now that I'm obsessed with queering everything. <laughs> um And I think, yeah, I can really relate to that in my work whilst it's very different from what you do. I think, um, there's definitely something in like taking the concepts that I've learned and doing something else with them that is applicable, sort of taking out, for example, the patriarchal lens. um, And also it makes me think of um, transactional analysis, for example, Mm -hmm. a a lot of uh, children's rights advocates really, um, whilst there's a lot of helpful stuff in TA, and that's having kind of parent and child and adult states for anyone who's not aware of it. um, There's something there as well about like how we view children in that and so there's there's all of these theories that have been built as you say through certain lenses and actually deconstructing those and taking what is helpful into your practice and kind of leaving the other parts behind is is really important i think yeah
1: 100 percent. and even if we just for me, it's about, and I talk about this in the book in terms of like how to evolve psychotherapy, um, I guess, specifically in service of survivors. But you can say the same thing here, which is that, I mean, Freud was doing his thing in like the early 1900s, like times have moved on um (laughs) slightly yeah just just a tad so it's, (laughs) it's it's really about and obviously his lens was very kind of like patriarchal white upper class you know and all those sorts of things um and i think he was a slightly problematic person as well in terms of uh relationships that he had um unethically with some of his patients so we really need to kind of um Take that into the lens uh, and and our context of okay, well, this is the theory, but also how do we evolve it? How do we update it? How do we widen it to welcoming more people? Like you
0: say, yeah, yeah. And I know in another episode, I talked to Jade A. Louise about um, how when she was training, uh, when she was studying psychology, how if something hadn't already been researched, then it wasn't possible to do it. Mm. And there's kind of recognizing or something in recognizing the limitations of a system that exists as it is. And then, as you say, like updating it, making it relevant for the people that we're actually working with, um, so that they really feel seen and understood in the context of what's going on for them, rather than placing rather than placing these like structural things on them and showing them oh well this is how you should understand your life you know when when that isn't the case at all
1: yeah 100% I completely agree with that and I think you know that that goes back to potentially reinforcing oppressions and disempowerments and our Mm. work is not supposed to do that um so yeah I really um really value kind of just adding this extra bit on as
0: well I hope it's helpful for anyone listening Yeah it's funny because again I feel like this is almost a whole episode there's so there are so many things there about um yeah about queering psychotherapy or any kind of um any kind of support or practice I think where you're working with people well yes
1: um, I could you know get a bunch of us together and have a group chat that'd be that'd be fun (laughs) yeah that would be really good yeah let's talk about
0: that okay cool Thank you so much for listening to another episode. I hope that you enjoyed what Irene really had to share and that it's given you some things to think about. If you would like to find out more about her, please do head to the show notes to check out the various links for ways that you can find out about her work and follow her online. Also remember that her book is coming out later on this year in 2021. So do keep an eye out for that. I will share the relevant links in the Quiz & Co Facebook group and also in my newsletter as and when it's released. I'm going to keep this really short because I can feel that my voice isn't going to last much longer. That's why there wasn't a middle part this week, but I hope you were able to take some breaths during the episode and um, that you are able to go back out into the rest of your day and have a good day. Looking forward to sharing another episode with you next week. Take care, everyone. Bye. Bye.